I have been conscientious that I have been speaking longer over the last few Sundays, and a little cherub has also reminded me. The cherub's name is Jeremy. He means well. And uh, I am very thankful for the message that you all had last Sunday in my absence. Uh, Jeremy uh, spoke on Job, uh, and a very, very helpful message. I was able to listen to it remotely. I, I subscribe to our podcast. I don't know if you realized, if you have an Apple phone, you can actually subscribe to the Tabernacle podcast, and as soon as we upload a sermon, it'll be there in your feed. If perhaps you're out of town or you've, you've had some interruption, and you can, you can quickly catch up to speed uh, with what we're doing here, and I uh, encourage you to do that. I was very helped by it myself, and I know others have shared that as well. Thank you, Jeremy, for teaching in my absence, and thank you for praying for our family. We had a very nice visit. It's not often that a pastor can be with family on a Sunday in their own church, and so that was very helpful for Abby and I. And again, thank you for um, just praying for us. Uh, My mother-in-law does have a biopsy tomorrow morning, Um, to kind of give a little bit more uh, concrete idea of potential treatments. And so, again, appreciate prayer for us and our family as we also pray for your families in time of need. Um, Malachi chapter 2 this morning, we're looking at verses 1 through 9. Malachi 2, 1 through 9, that's on page number 906 in the Red Pew Bible, page 906. And I'm just conscientious, actually, Caleb, that not all the floodlights are on up front. I don't know if you could perhaps uh, get some of those on. It. Um, people want to see my beautiful face, I'm sure. It may, may help a little bit. And we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 this morning. So, um, as a pre, pre, uh, t- pre-start to the sermon, let's uh, read those verses together. Verse 1, chapter 2, and now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung upon your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave to them, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name, True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction." You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. 
And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Modern people tend to think of love in terms of feeling or a subjective definition to love. It's often said or thought something along these lines, why do I need a piece of paper in order to love you? I don't need a paper. It kind of complicates things to really love another. Modern people, as I said, think in subjective terms. And if that's how you think of love, then yes, a legal document isn't really going to assist you or add to a feeling of love. But when the Bible talks about love, it's not done so primarily through um, what you are looking to receive, but rather in what you are looking to give towards another. Kind of along these lines, if entering into a covenantal marriage relationship, you ought to be asking yourself, how much are you willing to lose for the benefit of the other? How much freedom are you willing to relinquish? How much of your precious time, of your emotions and um, resources are you willing to invest for another person? So, the biblical definition of love, though, does not preclude deep passion and deep feeling. Happiness in marriage is something that's good, and it's looked at as a beautiful thing. However, it comes counterintuitively. It comes more through us fulfilling our duties, and our feelings are part of this Passions and promises unite together in the Bible's definition of love for another. That's because covenant relations are the opposite of consumer relations. A consumer relationship is something that we contractually uh, enter into I mean, you're no, under no obligation, for example, to stay if the services at your coffee shop are not what you request or require, because you're putting money into it. You, this is something that you're expecting to receive back for yourself. A covenant relationship is actually for the good of the relationship. It's less focused on your individual it's more focused on the relationship as highest priority. I am focusing this morning on the idea of covenant because through the book of Malachi, covenant as a key idea continually comes up. And we as a society are less and less aware of what covenant relationships are. We are a consumer-driven society. These are absolutely foreign to our way of thinking, and Christians 
are in a culture where this is not the norm. And so we have to exercise greater effort to understand the kinds of relationship and the kind of love that is required of us. Now, a covenant relationship that we're very familiar with is that of parents and children. You know, there are late nights for parents, and it's very challenging. But a lot of people would look down upon a parent if they said, I don't want this child anymore because it's infringing upon me time. Thankfully, our society still recognizes, I think as a, in the large part, that the child-parent relationship is a covenantal. We as parents do a lot of things for our children because of the relationship. We're in it for them. We're giving up of ourselves for them. Today, though, we, we usually only stay connected to people long enough if they're meeting our own needs. When people cease to benefit us, we cut our losses and we run. That's normal. And we are made in the image of God. We're covenantal creatures by design. We are designed to thrive when we put our own interests aside for the sake of the relationship that's how God has designed things, and so it would stand a reason then that we would flourish in those designs. America, as you know, is breaking down. Prayer in public schools being taken away was not actually the issue. We used to be a society, though, that was rooted in covenant relationships. Our Constitution is a covenantal document in which there are responsibilities of parties that are supposed to be guarded and cared for. Church membership was once seen to be covenantal, that we invest ourselves into the community and we give ourselves for the good of the community rather than what we can get from the community. Our community our communities were also built on this historic biblical value of, relation, of, of guarding the community. Now, I know we love our community, I know that we love our country, and we want the best for our country. And the book of Malachi is intended to teach us that we can save, if you will, our community by learning to incorporate the patterns of good covenant keeping. This is a lost virtue that we have, that we desperately need as, as Americans and people created in the image of God. Now, this specific paragraph that we're looking here, there is a, a framework of covenant that God had made with priests, and they had responsibilities. And and so, I'm looking at this and also kind of applying this to our lives to help us to identify areas in which we can improve our capacity as covenant keepers, and it's for our good. To flourish in covenant relationships, we must be men and women of integrity through Christ. This is a 
and essential for us. And I say through Christ here because it's so critical that we realize that on our own, we cannot, we sink beneath the waters when we look to ourselves, just like Peter. Christ thankfully keeps covenant for us because we are hopelessly unable to keep a perfect covenant with God directly. Thank God that He provides that undergirding for us. He's a good Savior, but in our love for Him, it would be, it would behoove us, it would like, it's, it's what we ought to respond back to Him to be good covenant keepers. And so, this text here we're going to be looking at speaking to to the priesthood, we've already seen God talking to Israel as a nation, as a covenant keeper. Now we're looking at a subgroup within the whole nation, the priesthood. And so I want us to look at verses 1 through 4, and we're going to also consider 1 Peter. And I want us to see that through Christ, you are a part of a priesthood. We may not realize that, but we're going to look and see how the holy orders of the Old Testament priesthood were formed, and then we're going to see that there are holy orders for us in the New Testament era as well. So, the holy orders of the Old Testament priesthood, which is a little bit less familiar to us, I want us to see in verse 1 of Malachi chapter 2, um, God speaking says, and now, O priest, this command is for you. This does not refer to a new order or a decree. Rather, it's, it's referencing a historic decree that they had forgotten, and it would appear new to them in a sense, but it's not new as indifferent. Verse 4, notice how um, he says here, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand. The command relates to the responsibilities that are in God's selecting of the priests for a particular purpose. They had responsibilities. There were commands, if you will, attached to this selection of the priesthood. Now, the circumstances of this selection are very unique. God called them to preach, to teach, and to be the mediator for the people when they sinned. But how this occurred is pretty remarkable. In fact, it's a very heroic honor that was bestowed upon the tribe of Levi. If you're unfamiliar with the tribes system, Israel was a nation, and there were 12 families that made up the nation. One of them was named Levi, and there was a great honor. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai, and Moses ascended the mountain to receive the law, but when he returned, what he found was that the people had, in the brief moment of him going away for 40 days and 40 nights, had corrupted themselves, even made images, because they thought that Moses had disappeared, and they started worshiping these images, these golden calf, and they engaged in immorality. They were worshiping these golden statutes like 
and they were mimicking Egypt who they had left. They were, cre- they were doing immoral acts in and around these statues. And when Moses came down the mount, you may remember some of this if you've seen the, the Ten Commandment movie. You know, Moses throws down the, the tablets and breaks them, the Ten Commandments. And when he broke those commands, what he was doing was he was showing by a visible symbol that Israel had violated the covenant even before it even started. It was broken and violated already. And now Moses stood at the gate of the camp, and he he called out famously, who is on the Lord's side? Come and gather to me. And at that time, all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And then Levi was instructed to go through the camp and to slaughter in judgment, God's righteous judgment, those who had participated in the idolatry. And in response to their bravery to exercise judgment like that, they were brought and selected to be servants of God to serve in the tabernacle system uh, from generation to generation. And it was in response to their bravery and to their loyalty. And Moses pronounced this decree, if you will, of ordination. They became ordained as a tribe, and they were set apart, Exodus 32 says, they were set apart for the service of the Lord that He might bestow a blessing. The Old Testament priesthood had a privileged position of of being close to the holiness of God, and they themselves were were kind of set apart as holy unto the Lord. And God committed Himself to Levi and bestowed upon them a blessing of privilege. Now, in verse 2, here in Malachi, what we have is a warning not to despise the blessing that God had bestowed upon them in their position. And the blessing, though, as you all know, familiarity, we can lose the sense of the blessing. Even as Christians, we can get up on Monday morning and neglect in our minds the absolute privilege that we have to know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It it can be routine, can destroy a sense of privilege and honor and blessing. And so, they were not living out their responsibilities, and we're going to get to that in a little bit further down. But for now, I want us to see that they were brought into a holy order. There is also a holy order of a New Testament priesthood, and there's privilege. And, and um, it's an absolute privilege, for example, for me to be a pastor of people. There are times when you've got to make hard calls You've got to say some things to folks that aren't always the most thrilling of conversations. And to shepherd people is a challenge, but it also has blessings attached to it. I know I have, I have a full week where I can spend time in God's Word and personally be fed 
in such a, a be- it's like eating the bread that's sitting in the tabernacle. Like, I have this opportunity to feed upon the bread, if you will. Tremendous blessing. And while that's true for me, the blessing of ordination, though, in the New Testament is not restricted to pastors. We are all set apart, and we are all selected out of the world to be a people, a priesthood, people set apart as holy unto the Lord. And it's true for me, but it's even greater for you. When Christ came, He was Lord of lords, and He was also priest of priests. And when He gave up His own life, He collapsed the whole system of the temple through the Spirit and put that out to all who call upon His name. In this sense, we are all vested with the capacity to go to Christ direct, go to the Father directly and confess our sin and find that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We all have that capacity. Jesus was the living sacrifice who collapsed the whole temple system for Christians. And so, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we see these words, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, called out of darkness to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I don't know if you realize, but you are a part of a holy order. Now, you're not a Jesuit. You're not an Augustinian. Not in that sense. But you have been called out of darkness. You are a part of a new holy order of people. You have a relationship with the Heavenly Father, and you are His child. He has covenanted Himself to you, and He always keeps His word. Now, I had lunch this week with a really very, very nice young man. I think he, I could be a bad judge of ages, but I, I think he was in his mid-twenties, mid-twenties. He was dedicating his life to serve the Lord as a full-time missionary in Japan, and his intention is to do this for the rest of his life. And I was just so struck by his sincerity. I, young man went to Word of Life, and uh, he's making plans. He's from Wayne County, and he has just a sincerity of heart. And I asked him, you know, where he was living in the county, and, and if he and his parents were, if he was living at home, and if he and his parents were going to church together somewhere. And he replied that in his family, he alone was faithful to attending church. That young man called out of darkness. All that darkness that existed around him. He was taking his heavenly Father at his word. He had confidence in the Father-Child covenant, and he was taking it seriously. You know, in the Scripture here, it talks about laying it to heart. The, the priesthood wasn't laying it to heart, the privilege that they had. This young man was laying it to heart that he was in a new covenant family even now. 
What a beautiful, beautiful picture. We are called into this holy order to not live for ourselves, but to live to love one another. This is what spiritual sacrifice means. It means how much are you willing to give of yourself in covenant relationship to your heavenly Father? What about to your bride, the church? Does the good of the church come over the immediate needs of yourself as an individual? To love the brethren is our calling. It's our holy order to love one another because they will know that we are disciples by the love that we have for one another. Sometimes it's easier to love unbelievers because they don't hurt us. Believers should do what they ought to do. And so sometimes loving believers is even harder than loving unbelievers. When Christians don't Christian, the name of Christ suffers. People turn and say, well, you know, that church doesn't welcome people. They've got cliques. Boy, you should see that person at church, or excuse me, you should see that person at work. It's not the same person that goes through the doors of that church. Yeah, Christians don't Christian. But we are called to love those people anyway. Covenant keeping means giving of yourself to the body of Christ because Christ gave himself for you when you were not lovely, when you were ungodly. He demonstrated His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So verse 3 is very fascinating. There's an ultimate like um, dishonor that's invoked here. You know, the, the, the priesthood is not living the way they ought to in, in verse 3. Man, I, I wouldn't want to have dung spread on my face. He says, I'm going to rebuke your descendants. So this was supposed to be a generational priesthood. The descendants are going to get hurt here, and there's going to be a wiping of dung upon their face, and then he's going to take them away with the dung. See, it's hard for us to imagine, but priests in the Old Testament were butchers. That's what they did. They, they, they carved meat, and they had to process out entrails. Now, some of you who know how to gut a deer know how to keep your meat clean. But that black tar that's in the, the lower portions of the deer, that is what God is saying, I will wipe that on your face because you are not honoring your place of service to me. But we often will wipe tar on our face by the way we treat God's bride. When we, we don't recognize our privilege of being a priest and we don't offer sacrifices of praise to Him, we're, we're communicating, we're grumbling and we're griping and what we're doing is we're wiping tar over our faces because that's not how we're supposed to be as, as followers of Christ. 
But the reality is, it doesn't have to be this way. There are great responsibilities in being a Christian, or, or to be a, a priest, if you will, in this holiness unto the Lord, but there's also great joy that comes out of these responsibilities. Verses 5 through 6, I, I see a turn here, and, and there's a, a kind of a reminder in verse 5. He says, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. This is, um, this is God's part. He's, he's, he's going to be a covenant keeper with them. He's going to give them life and peace it says, and I gave unto him, and it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. This was the side of the priest. They were supposed to, to uh, stand in awe and to honor his name and fear him. Verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. And he walked with me in peace and in uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. The high priest the, the whole priesthood is foreign to us in the Old Testament because we are so outside of that world. But what God was communicating was is that the privilege of life and peace was theirs because they were serving inside the temple. They were close to God. Like the place of absolute power. That's fearful on the one hand, but it's also a source of peace and life on the other. The high priest would only once a year go into the very most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant rested. In the last song that we sang, I think it mentioned about, you know, God's glory being among the, the cherubim, and it's a reference to the idea of the glory that existed in the Holy of Holies. That room was a, a small box room, and there was no light in that room. It was completely pitch dark, and yet there was this golden altar with these cherubim, and light emanated, and it wasn't a candle. Light emanated between the wings of the cherubim. It was the radiance of God's glory that was resting there. And priests couldn't go into that room without first creating a smoke screen. They had to create a smoke screen because if they looked upon the glory, they themselves would die. So they created this smoke screen so they could enter in and, and do what they needed to do, not looking directly like, like an eclipse. You don't look right at the sun. You kind of look, kind of look away. And living close to the glory of God, on the one hand, was a fearful privilege. It was it was a dangerous place to be, but yet at the same time, it was the safest place to be. And peace and life are found in the presence of God. When I was in the sixth grade, I had a Christian teacher in the public school in Canada where we lived in New Brunswick who would read to us each day a little bit of the cross and the switchblade. This is a public school. And she would read this, and, and the story is set in, in Brooklyn um, in the late 1950s, and at that time, uh, David Wilkerson went in to, to minister to the gangs that were territorial in that area, place that even the police wouldn't go into, and he went in there. And there were harrowing stories of near-death experience in which, like, you know, a gun's pointed at him, and, and it misfires. 
Nicky Cruz, maybe you know that name, he, an evangelist that came out of that ministry, there were, there were good things that came out of that ministry. And I remember hearing this story, and, and it moved me as a sixth grader thinking, like, what courage, what life, like, what peace that you could have and be next to someone of great, such great strength, that is God's presence. Maybe you've heard of David Livingston and the missionary activity in the 1800s that he did. He, he went to the very heart of Africa when it was incredibly risky, and he famously said this, maybe you've heard this, I am immortal until the will of God for me is accomplished. He said it again. I am immortal until the will of God for me is accomplished. That's a very bold statement. A lot of peace in that. Now, being a Christian does have responsibility. We are called to have a public faith. That has risk. Sometimes God calls Christians to suffer for their faith like Job, which we heard last Sunday. But those who do suffer for their faith do find in those precious moments that God is much closer to them than they had ever imagined. Like Daniel in the lion's den, he was comforted by the angels who shut the mouths of the lions. You know, when Christ was in the garden, the angels came and ministered to Him. Now, we have a responsibility as covenant keepers to regularly assemble with other believers. And over the last two years, we have been tested. We have been tested whether or not we would carry out our responsibilities. John Lowe, in his 80s, the man was no fear. I, I, I personally was encouraged every single Sunday that he came out now, some of us were more fearful than others, and we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. God very kindly restores weak people. Peter thought he had strength, but it was discovered that he didn't, and God restored him. So, I want to encourage you that there will be coming a time when we will have greater testing of our faith. If the day grows darker, we may have to stand and be more bold than just simply covering our own healthcare situation and decisions. I would encourage you to take the responsibility of your holy order seriously, and one of the things that you, can, you were asked to do by your Savior is to give to the Lord all your anxieties. Anxiety says, I have to control the world around me in order to have peace. No, I want to encourage you, like animal sacrifice, take your anxiety and cast it upon the altar. Cast it upon the Lord, for He cares for you. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. When you say, I am fearful of what's going on, and you tell that to the Lord, you are doing exactly what you have been commanded to do. 
daily casting your care upon the Lord is a spiritual sacrifice that we are all called to do as New Testament priests. We are called daily to cast all of our anxieties upon Him. And when you do this, you're going to find that the joy and the peace and the life comes into your soul. We're going to be tested in days ahead. There are joys and there are also responsibilities, and if we take them seriously, we will see the joy as we obey Him. And that's how we flourish. We are called to live in a covenant relationship, and we must be men and women of integrity through Jesus Christ. This is what we've been called to do. Now, the last point, verse 7 through 9, we see that single-mindedness, that is integrity, is our covenant obligation. Verse 7 through 9, let's just read those. It says, um, for the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble for your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. There are duties, there are obligations to living in covenant with the Lord. For example, the priesthood was, for example, in verse 7, to guard knowledge. They were the guardians of the truth. They were the one that people would turn to. Not everyone had a copy of the Scriptures, and they would have to go to them for instruction. How are we supposed to live? Well, in this last two verses, we see a lack of personal integrity had caused them to turn aside and follow bribe monies, and they had become corrupted. They were showing partiality in their instruction. I don't know what the exact reasons. I imagine, you know, follow the money. That's kind of how things often go. Maybe they wanted to be loved by other people. Maybe they really wanted, like, esteem and favor with people. And so they, they said, well, if you just do this, then it will be okay. And, you know, you can, it'll be all right. I recently read the autobiography of John Murray, a uh, preacher of universal salvation. John Murray is not a name you probably are familiar with, but he immigrated to America in 1770, and he preached a false gospel. Many were taken with this gospel, gospel message, and in the founding era, it's probably not well known, but approximately 85% of the evangelical churches in America, the 13 colonies, were Calvinistic in their orientation. And Murray, knowing his audience, chose to obscure his own true position. He did not explicitly state what he understood some of the verses that he would quote to mean. He believed that everyone would finally be saved. He believed in an unlimited atonement that would be entire reconciling the whole world and everything back to God. Now, Calvinism wasn't the problem. There's room for differences of opinion on election, and that's okay. 
But Orthodox Christianity has never, ever taught a reconciliation of all things. Rather, it has always consistently taught that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And they also consistently taught today is the day of salvation. Turn now before you pass into eternity. Now, Murray's strategy was to use, he said, scriptural language only. He used words that sounded good because they were taken out of context, and he would use them as cover, and he said, I let my listeners come to deductions, comments, and applications on their own. What John Murray was, was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, I bring this up as a point of contrast because elders and pastors have a great responsibility to be forthright with the Word of God as they teach. The world, though, is not just looking at pastors. We are a diminishing value to society. The world, though, is looking at Christians to see whether or not we will be people of integrity. You know, the book of James talks about partiality, but did you know that the root of partiality is that you're very willing to not judge yourself properly. It's so common to just let yourself off the hook and say, I'm going to give myself a pass. Yeah, I shouldn't say those things. I shouldn't look at those things. I, I'm just going to let myself have a pass. But the danger is, clearly, that you are becoming partial to yourself, and you're creating duplicity, and a refusal to recognize your own need of grace will become the instrument by which you then judge other people. You will not be gracious to other people. No, we need to be people of integrity, rightly identifying our own tendency to be partial towards ourselves. But this is what it means to take the log out of our own eyes. And keeping covenant with God is a process of giving up of ourselves gradually over time. We are not perfect, and we will never be perfect covenant keepers. But we have to continually ask ourselves, how much are we willing to lose for the sake of our relationship with God. And living a life of integrity means being single-minded. And to do this well, we must not make excuses for our own sinful choices. See, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we should not be quenching the Spirit. We should be submissive to it. And like a priest, confess our own sin to the Lord. He is faithful and just, as I said, to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity. We must take our sins to the Lord. You see, our priesthood is very easy. Our priesthood is, like, you don't have to raise the animal. 
you don't have to butcher the animal. Like, you just have to have an honest heart of repentance and turning to the Lord yourself. We have a greater priesthood in the sense that we have a high priest and we can go directly to him with all of our needs. See, to flourish in covenant relationships means we must be men and women of integrity, and that's through Christ. Through Christ, we are part of a priesthood, and being a Christian has responsibilities and joys, and single-mindedness is our covenant obligation. We're made in the image of God. It can't be any other way. You think you might have a better way, but you don't, you didn't create this world. This is the way. And God knows that we were meant to flourish when we live out our duties and promises that we make through faith to Him. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, called out of darkness to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time in your word. We ought to be men and women of integrity, and we fall so short. But Lord, allow us to be sensitive to your spirit, to confess our sin, and come boldly to your throne of grace. You are a wonderful Savior, and we can be certain of that. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to close our